Hello, and welcome to The Mummer's Farce, the podcast about the visual production of HBO's Game of Thrones. I'm Kate Barry. I'm Dan Solberg. And today we'll be talking about the two last episodes of Season 6, Battle of the Bastards and The Winds of Winter, both directed by Miguel Sapochnik. Dan, these were big episodes. They were huge. What did you think about them? I think they're definitely the best episodes of the season. Yes. I think, in particular... Parts of Winds of Winter and most all of Battle of the Bastards are some of the best things in the show. Yeah. I think both episodes look amazing Mm -hmm. and they hit some really awesome narrative points. There are just maybe one or two things that, like a loose tooth that I just can't stop messing with because they Mm -hmm. bother me so much. Yeah. There there are some some little moments in this, but like overall and in particular, the Battle of the Bastards episode in the story with... Is the story at Winterfell is I just I watched that and I was like ah oh, that was that's honestly one of the best episodes of this show yeah it is so good and I was doing a little bit of reading it was very it went very differently than what they expected mm-hmm. they they filmed for days that they just had to cut out part of what's amazing about the scenes they seem so well choreographed but mm-hmm. I guess like the battle is supposed to look really different okay that not only were they going to have John and Ramsay face off on the battlefield rather than at Winterfell. But the WB was hoping for 700 practical horses, mm-hmm. like and and that Sapochnik thought that to film what they had written would take 42 days, mm-hmm. which was more days than he had. I think it took 25. Yeah, which is already I want to say about more than triple a normal episode. Yeah, yeah. So they had they were thinking really big, but I think the result is so good that mm-hmm. I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. Yeah, I believe it was also the set the record for at the time the most expensive episode of television 30 million dollars uh, approximately both of these episodes have a lot of behind the scenes stuff because they want to sort of indulge and sort of make a big deal about how elaborate it was which i think warranted i'm mm-hmm. curious about a lot of it was th- those are fascinating to watch to see how they put so many of these different components together, how often are the are things real. Mm-hmm. And I think where you could look at a lot of the stuff that is in the Winds of Winter episode and some of the very elaborate stuff in that, which is all very impressive, but is often uh, much more clearly computer-generated effects. Yeah. Even as impressive as they think they are in that, in that episode. In the Battle of the Bastards... There is a mixture of CG yeah. and real that makes it pretty tough to tell when the CG is happening. And so it's very seamless and it feels all very grounded and practical, even though large portions of it actually weren't. Yeah, but you you can't tell in the way that they stitch them together with having people really th- thrown through the air or mm-hmm. having one horse take a tumble and then CGing a, a fake horse or... Kit Harrington makes a joke that he's had the most shit thrown on him because it was all real yeah. shit. Yeah. <laughs> and then compare that to where you see the practical footage of Jonathan Price lit up with a green light mm-hmm. and going, that's, um, it is less impressive. Yeah. Even, even though those are cool scenes and we'll get to them. No, and like... I, and, no, that's amazing. But when you see what was filmed, you're not like, whoa, in the way that some of the ba- behind the scenes of Battle of the Bastards was like, yeah. that's like a real battle yeah in fact yeah it's not to really talk down any of the other effects it's just to talk up like as impressive as some of the things that they've done in this show are this is 
at or above pretty much anything that we've seen as far as spectacle. Yeah. I thought Battle of the Bastards, I mean, especially the winter, the Winterfell scenes, mm-hmm. the marine stuff is fine. It's okay. It's, uh, it's some, we'll talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, a, a really amazing effort. Mm-hmm. Would you like to give us a rundown sure so we can thing. just get started? Yes. All right. Well, we, the episode starts out in marine, actually. The slaver cities are assaulting marine from the sea. Danny wants revenge, but Tyrion counsels another meeting with the wise masters from Yunkai, Astapor, and Volantis. The representatives from those cities expect Danny to surrender at the meeting, but she asks for their surrender instead. She hops on Drogon, and Viserion and Rhaegal bust out of the catacombs, and they all three of them destroy a ship together. The Dothraki, with Dario, storm the city gates where the Sons of the Harpy are murdering people. Grey Worm offers the slave soldiers their freedom for laying down their arms. He kills two of the city representatives as well, leaving the last one to spread the message of what happened. Later, Yara and Theon appear before Danny and Tyrion in the pyramid. They propose an alliance. Danny agrees if the Ironborn relinquish their pirate ways. They agree. Before the battle, Jon and Sansa and company meet with Ramsay. Jon proposes one-on-one combat, but Ramsay refuses. It's decided there will be a battle. Back at the tents, Jon strategizes with Davos and Tormund. When it's just Jon alone with Sansa, she scolds him for not asking her for her advice about Ramsay, since she knows him better than anyone. She says not to give him what he wants, and that Rickon is as good as dead. Davos finds Shireen's burned stag doll, but the battle commences before he can confront Melisandre. Battle lines form up, and Ramsay makes Rickon run to Jon, but hits him with an arrow before he can get there, which kills him. The Bolton forces bear down on Jon and company, and the fighting is dirty and intense. The Boltons make a shield wall around Jon's forces and push inward. At the last minute, the Knights of the Vale arrive and beat the Boltons back. Jon and Wunwun storm Winterfell, and even though Wunwun dies, Jon beats Ramsay to a pulp. They lock him in the kennels, and Sansa watches his own hounds tear him apart. She smiles and she walks away. I think the WB said that was their favorite ending ever. It was definitely their favorite Sansa moment, it seemed like. Mm. They were like, oh, this was our favorite Sophie Turner performance, getting this bit down. They did talk about how many times they had to do that. They had to make Sansa do that. How many times they had to have San- or John punching Ramsay on mm-hmm. the ground. They're like, oh, we spent 10 hours with him. Punching him. <laughs> and they got it from every angle or whatever. But yeah. Yeah, I like the way it ends too. Yeah. So let's get Maureen out of the way, yeah, I'd let's say. Do them first. It's where the episode starts. I did really like this opening. There's this sort of tar ball that's being catapulted into the city and the the camera follows it i liked that that's a nice way to be sort of falls of fire exactly and to be thrown into the city there's this sort of awkward meeting with Tyrion and danny where she's really upset how things have gone and Tyrion's trying to justify himself although he seems like maybe he's in the right when he says that the reason that they're being attacked is because marine was doing well Mm. not because it was failing yeah i think this is good Tyrion here Mm -hmm. finally uh (laughs) We uh, get to see him both assert his position, also make kind of jokes, but like, you know, this guy kind of nervous joke making, but he's also pretty sure that he's he's done the right thing here. And Daenerys is just sort of furious, right? This is, by her appearances, she left things in an okay place. Mm-hmm. It wasn't perfect, but it was okay. And now she's come back to it and it's in a total chaos. And Tyrion says, the people are behind you. I mean, not all the people. You're never going to have all the people behind you. <laughs> yeah. Which is true. And she wants to essentially 
go to the other slaver cities and burn them to the ground. And Tyrion's like, don't do that. That's what the Mad King would do. And you're not the Mad King, right? Mm-hmm. And so he, he talks her out of it and they set up another meeting. But in that scene, we don't necessarily understand like what the meeting is going to be. It's just, it's like, he says, there must, there's got to be another way. And then we cut to them at this meeting with the wise masters, the, uh, the benevolent rulers, and the something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we've got Marine, Volantis, and Yunkai represented. And there's sort of, I think the audience is in on it, but like a bait and switch that they're like, we're talking about surrendering. Mm-hmm. Oh, not our surrender. Right. And then Daenerys hops on Drogon and, and flies around, and Rhaegal and Viserion break out of the pyramid. Which apparently they could have done. Yeah, they just decided now is the time. <laughs> and they go and they all burn a single ship. And I was a little confused at first because I was sort of under the assumption that these other cities were also using Unsullied or mm. some sort of slave soldiers. So I don't know what made these slave sailors like any more deserving of death than any of the others. But mm. I think it's really just to send a message of what they can do. Ray Worm later says, return to your family, so at least we know that they're not unsullied. Right. But it's a, it's enough to get the message across. Yeah, apparently. I mean, that's the this is the one sort of logic disconnect I have with this, is for the characters that they show, where the people that they show, they show the, the convincing going on. But, like, there's, a, like, a lot of ships, and they're still, even when the dragons are flying around, they're still hurling flaming tar balls at the city. They burn one ship and this small group of people up up top on this on this hill, those soldiers lay down their arms, but like everybody yeah. else is on those boats. <laughs> yeah. Like I understand why for Danny's purposes they want the boats. They don't want to destroy them. Mm-hmm. So they want to be able to use them to their ends. But somehow something is not actually being communicated that is in theory we're supposed to understand is being communicated that all the boats would cease fighting because the dragons Burnt could, one. They burnt one ship, and so they could burn more, I guess. But yeah, it's just kind of a little bit of a leap there. The thing that I thought was really strange was then they cut to the gates of the city, which we've seen before, mm-hmm. and the sons of the harpy are randomly slaughtering people outside the gates. Who are those what, people? Why are they, they outside the gates? What was happening? <laughs> there was, yeah. I want to see. I want to see that scene like thirty minutes prior. What's, yeah. What's going on out there? It was. I, it came out of nowhere, mm-hmm. and I and they're just outside of the gates stabbing people. And the gates are open. They left the gates open, and then and so the, the Dothraki, Dothraki just go right in. in yeah, theory. yeah. So it was that was weird. I don't know. I mean, I guess they wanted to show that the Dothraki have come, and that like they're being led by Dario. But it was it was just weird. That came out of nowhere. It was a way of cleaning things up very quickly. Mm-hmm. Let's resolve this thing as fast as possible, and let's show all the different parts. And how those are getting resolved. Dario with Dothraki, back. Sons of the Harpy, they're all outside for some reason. Now they're probably dead. <laughs> yeah. The sea battle is over. I'm eager to see how this plays out in the books. I've, it's obviously going to be more complex. It seems like there might be more of a naval battle with Victarion's forces and the other slaver cities that are also in the bay mm-hmm. and who's going to be fighting who in that case is Euron going to show up at the end and you know how the, how's and he's that dragon all binder? Go? who knows, who knows? It's, I, I'm excited to see that battle play out this scene I don't outright dislike it but it is uh feels pared down to like let's get this resolved because we got to get Danny on her 
you know, voyage home by the end of the season. And their tying up of loose ends will get even wilder in the next season or in the next episode with trying to clean up Marine. But we'll get there. The scene that I really did like was when Yara and Theon arrive Mm -hmm. in Marine, and Tyrion is really turning the knife on Theon. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But the flirtation between Yara and and Daenerys actually I thought was was done well. Like where it was it was funny, it was titillating, but not like I don't know. I thought that was a good change of expectations, especially since everyone is going to try to marry Daenerys. Why not Yara? Right. Yeah, and in general, the sort of commonalities that Yara is able to draw between her situation and Danny's situation, like, oh, have the Iron Islanders ever had a woman in charge? And they're like, nope, I would be the first. It's like, hmm, interesting. (laughs) I also have similar aspirations. And we all had terrible fathers. and Which I guess you could go to just about everybody. (laughs) Everybody except for... Jon Snow, or actually, well, we don't know. Let's, that was the wrong Stark to pick there. <laughs> I was trying to reference Ned, but... Yeah, I don't know. Mace Tyrell seems... He's a buffoon, though. Yeah, but he's not evil. No, it's true. He's not evil. He's too dumb to be evil. <laughs> Who would you want to be your Westeros or uh, Essos father? My Essos father? Yeah. Huh. Oh, Silvio Farrell, obviously. Oh, sure. Maybe... Well, you know, I was going to say Illyrio because you could kind of do whatever you wanted. Yeah. And you'd have a lot of cheese. <laughs> but He's also good. he has a penchant for just like selling you off to the Dothraki. So maybe I'm not so into that. That's true. But he's got deep pockets. You'd go off in style. Mm-hmm. So that was basically Marine. Yeah. In a nutshell. I mean, that the stuff with Yara and Theon happens later on and is a bit of a surprise and they know it's kind of a shocking thing because they start out with focus just on Tyrion, mm-hmm. sort of delivering this thing about like somebody he's seen before. Yeah. You know, the last time I saw you, and it's like, oh, who's he talking to? <laughs> and it's obviously Theon. They, they show it after that, but yeah, it's it's funny. Even Danny has these expectations about the way that Westeros works, and they're they're very much like addressing Theon, even though the two of them are up there together, Yara mm-hmm. and Theon. They're like start by talking to him. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes clear over time. It's like, no, that's Yara's. We're trying to put her in charge. Yeah. And also she's the one that's got all the big ideas here. Yeah. And Daenerys actually gets them to agree not to reeve and rape anymore, which is a pretty good concession. I don't know if I believe them, though. Oh, okay. <laughs> because they're, they're like, it's our way of life. Sorry, you're going to have to stop your way of life. Okay. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know that the Ironborn just stopped their way of life. Yeah, like that. that does seem to be something very important yeah. to them. But then we cut back to the scenes at Winterfell. The first time we, we come to them is a meeting that happens on the what will soon be the battlefield. John, Sansa, Davos, they're all over there. Everybody but Melisandre, basically. And mm-hmm. then Ramsay and his cronies, mm-hmm. Karstark and Umber, who apparently is Small John Umber, is who that's supposed to be, but just a pretty different character than small john numbers in the book so it's, it's right. more or less just a name to attach to a number right i thought the layers of the character who plays ramsey or the person who plays ramsey's the layers of his acting was really good because when he starts out he seems like a bad actor because mm-hmm. he's being unconvincing and trying to appeal to rationality to mercy he's saying like thank you you know if you guys bend the knee now Everyone will be pardoned, right? But it's it's really unconvincing. And I, I, I like that there are these different layers because then he reverts back to his cruelty. He can't help but say that his dogs are going to eat everyone's balls, right? Yeah. And so, like, that's where, he, that's where he, his actual personality is. And so that comes 
so much clearer and more convincingly than the stuff mm-hmm. he says before. I love the stone faces that John and Sansa give him. They keep cutting. He keeps trying to like say things that are like obviously antagonistic to try and rile them up, and they're just blank faced. Like, no, nah, why don't we fight one on one? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so he, he turns that down, right? But the star of this is definitely Sansa, who has been quiet the whole time, piping up in the end and saying, "You'll die tomorrow. Sleep well tonight." And then yeah. he rides off yeah. while everybody else is still there. It's a drop the mic moment. Yeah, and it's it maybe not the very first, but it, it sets up this divide between Sansa and the rest of Jon's forces, right? Which will become important in this episode. And there's some places where it makes a lot of sense, and then it will sort of move into territory where it doesn't so much. But she she's taking a very hard line on Ramsay and feels like she, I mean, she does know him better than anyone else. And the men, although they really only follow John, though, and they'll mm-hmm. only listen to John. And so it would have been maybe more correct for when she turned around for them all to follow her, but they stick around. Yeah, because she's she's kind of acting on her own here. The people that are really the ones who follow Sansa are the Knights in the Vale, and they're not there. So right yet, which then this is illustrated further in the in the tents later with the strategy. There's some. Some good stuff, though, with Tormund, who's <laughs> like has never engaged in like tactics of any kind. So he's just unfamiliar with all the terminology. And <laughs> he to, like, they really have to break it down, like pincer move. He's like, I don't know. They attack from the sides. Okay. <laughs> Let's not do that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not get attacked from the sides. Yeah. And Sansa's pretty blunt here because mm-hmm. she knows that they're going to have to sacrifice Rickon regardless, right? Well, yeah, John doesn't seem to want to believe this, right? Because everything that John sort of engages in, he's the hero character. And granted, he should maybe be wise that this is a possibility, Grant, given his failures at Hardhome yeah. and, and how poorly some of the rescue missions that he's engaged in in, in more recent history have gone. But... Sansa is definitely like clued into a reality here that I think even for us watching, at least for me, like watching the show originally was like, that seems early to give up on him, mm-hmm. but, but she's right, of course. Yeah. And her, her sort of most convincing point is that Ramsay cannot allow a true born son of Ned Stark to live. His position as Warden of the North would never be safe if there was a Rickon. And so she's right. Mm-hmm. But it does seem harsh. It does. John's not really willing to take it. I mean, I think that the back and forth between John and Sansa is pretty interesting because they both have their strengths and weaknesses. They both have their thing, their moments where they have a justified indignation and times where it feels like maybe they overreach. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't necessarily feel like I'm full on on Sansa's side or full on on John's side. I kind of teeter back and forth. I'm just sort of watching this interaction and this struggle happened. And I think this is one of the most palpable sort of power struggle moments that they have yeah. across these two episodes. Yeah. They've also, I really like the conversation with Tormund and Davos and talking about hope and mm-hmm. how they served other kings. I thought that that was a really nice moment from two characters that maybe you wouldn't have thought had a lot in common, mm-hmm. but do. And it also, tr- it sort of explains Tormund's um, allegiance to John makes a lot more sense. Davos is still kind of weird and so it's nice for them to try to give some sort of explanation like why is he even in this fight yeah davos says to Tormund, maybe that was our mistake believing in kings mm-hmm. and Tormund's retort then is like john snow's no king it's like well not for another not episode that you, not that you know about but 
soon enough. Yeah. And then there's also the conversation between John and Melisandre where he asks her not to bring him back if he mm-hmm. should die again. And she doesn't agree. She's like, no, <laughs> I'm going to do what the Lord of Light tells me. And you're a big part of this. But it's possible that the Lord of Light just brought you back to die again here. Mm-hmm. And this is something that will be echoed in some ways later by uh, in the next episode by Davos when after he's discovered the stag and he confronts Melisandre the idea of talking about the what we've got we've got to use what we have Mm -hmm. John is engaging in this fight with the forces that they have they don't have any other choice Melisandre here says this is the lord we've got right this is the the god that we have to follow even though John's like this is like, what kind of God would do this to us? Yeah, which I, I also like. He does say, uh, what kind of God would bring me back just to kill me mm-hmm. later or something? And it seems like a, a sort of reference to George R. R. Martin, right? <laughs> that I feel like there's this almost moment where the characters are, are aware of their author, that yeah. he would do that. He's an evil God named George R. R. Martin. <laughs> yeah, the Lord of Light's name is George. Yeah. Nobody knew. Then they have the scene where Davos finds the stag and... This is my maybe favorite shot of the whole episode. Oh, it's beautiful. I yeah. love it. First, it's just Davos finds the stag in the what, what was clearly like where the stake was, where Shireen was burned at the stake. And he's looking at it. He's puzzling it out. He's figuring, he's putting the pieces together as to like that this is what happened to Shireen. And just as when he sort of has this revelation, it dawns on him. Literally, then the dawn comes, the horns blow, and it's this... You thought you had more time here. You thought you had this important personal matter that you have to deal with, but it all has to wait. There's this bigger thing on the horizon that you're going to have to address first. Yeah, and the sun rises, and it looks as if it's coming from the pyre, mm-hmm. and so it's like a, it's recreating the fire, really. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's a gorgeous shot. It's, it's lovely. Then we get the start of the battle itself. Well, I mean, they draw up before they actually start fighting. Ramsey brings out Rickon on a leash of sorts. Basically, it's like a rope tied around his neck. Yeah. Which, of course, his association with the hounds makes mm-hmm. sense. This is how he is trying to draw the correlation that Rickon is an animal and he doesn't see him as a, as a person, sort of dehumanizing him. And then another like classic Ramsey trick of like adding a insult to injury and trying to come up with the, the cruelest way possible to end up killing Rickon. Because he pulls out the knife and everybody's like, oh, no. Is he going to stab or slit Rickon's throat right in front of us? And then he cuts the ropes and is like, no, run. Run to your brother. And if you get there, then you're safe. And Mm -hmm. that's the game, right? Yeah. And he's using Rickon as as bait in in the way that Sansa warned Jon that he would, Mm -hmm. that he's the one who sets traps. And Rickon is the first piece of that, really. Yeah. And on on the one hand, it's like, yes, Jon fell into the trap, right? And then he is in this danger zone where the arrows can hit him from the archers but on the other hand he doesn't die and <laughs> so if ramsey's trap was seemed purely to lure john into danger it actually didn't work but the trap may also be well i mean i think john's mistake is that in going forward his men go to help him mm-hmm. and that puts them in the weak okay. position right i think that that's if it's if it's just about john then you're right and he wins but if it's that they don't want to see his their commander out there on their own, and they meet the brunt of the of Ramsay's forces. I think that he accidentally puts them in a weaker tactical position. That's true. Yeah, because I think the their original strategy they were saying weren't they saying we wanted him to come to us? Yes. Okay. So <laughs> I guess it was the opposite then. 
So yeah, okay, John's fault. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's so beautifully shot. There's on the field there are these flaming flayed men, which are really sinister. It's wide panoramic shots. Just everything is. This sequence is really pretty amazing. Yeah. And we'll, we'll, as we keep getting into it, I know in our last episode, we talked about how Game of Thrones, the show seems to have twisted the anti-war message of George R. Martin a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't think that is true in this scene. Mm-hmm. I think that the battle becomes a pretty clear anti, anti-battle anti in terms of like highlighting the panic and the waste of human life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and showing that it is possible for characters slightly on the outside to have a conscience about it, they show a difference between the way that Davos is commanding his archers compared to Ramsay when they know that both forces are mingling in this middle area that's within like archers' range. But there's no way to pinpoint shooting the enemy here. Mm-hmm. You're just launching arrows into the fray. Mm-hmm. And so Davos says, hold back, we'll, kill. we'll just end up killing our own people. Ramsay, of course... Oh, arrows away you know if, yeah. if our own people die well we're we've got more that's a war of attrition in a certain sense and we're going to win that right so they they push forward with it and it's just this kind of like the the brutality of being on the front lines and that being sent in to be like even your commander doesn't really care if, if you come back alive in fact it maybe is the point that you don't right and yeah then the actual fighting is hectic and they mention it in some of the after the episode stuff, but I, I think it's very true. John's a very good fighter, but like he survives out of luck in mm-hmm. a lot of cases. There's just, and he's the hero character, so he gets, gets to be pretty lucky. <laughs> but there's there's a number of times where somebody is running at him with some sort of spear, some sort of sword, something cuts that off, or he turns at the last minute and sees it, and he just barely averts death at least a dozen times here. Yeah. That tracking shot is really amazing as he's mm-hmm. making his way initially through the battle. But things then get worse with the piles of bodies that he almost seems like he's not going to be lucky. And what a surprise that would have been if he had died just being trampled by his own men. Mm-hmm. That would have been a very bold move on Game of Thrones' part. It seemed like it might have even been going that way. Yeah. The way that the the music started playing is like the sad music and the sound starts to get very muffled. We just have this kind of like bassy kind of beats and like uh, muffled metal sword clanging sounds happening as he's getting further and further almost like this zombie horde kind Mm -hmm. of encapsulating him and he's like sinking into the mud we see somebody i don't think it's john but somebody else like it's we see them like it's their head stepped into the mud yeah and it just gets into be this like suffocating thing is the semicircle Mm -hmm. of shields sort of press in yeah yeah so i I thought that that was so well done, and they and making it not seem glamorous, or that you could be killed just from like being suffocated or stepped on, right? That it's not it's not all hacking. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh no, this is not a very glorious way to die. That they, especially the wildlings, you can their frustration because they're being outmaneuvered by just this phalanx of like long spears. The people who are hurting them are far away, mm-hmm. and there's nothing they can do. Yeah, it's kind of cowardly in a sense, right? You're yeah. hiding. You're not fighting us. You're hiding behind this wall and poking at us. With but sticks. it's working. It's working. And then they're pushing him into this pile of bodies. And then Umber and those forces are coming up over the top, the Karstarks and whatnot. So did any part of you think that Umber was ever going to turn on Ramsay? Not once they were in this 
battle. Yeah. It didn't seem that way. But I, for a long time leading up to that, I thought that that would potentially be the case. And then maybe, maybe we wouldn't even really have this fight because the North would rise up against him, against Ramsey, and they'd all unify their houses and yeah. that'd be the way of things. But They seem to leave little breadcrumbs. So when Roose Bolton was still alive, Ramsey has the head of House Kerwin laid in front of his son and Roos warns, if you do that, no one's going to follow you. Mm-hmm. That the houses are going to turn on you. And when the sons of Karstark and Umber come to Ramsey, they refuse to bend the knee. And mm-hmm. there were some people, I think, who thought, because they don't want to break an oath. But then it doesn't happen. And somehow, I guess, small John Umber turns into this, like, I don't know, like the pre-final boss in a way that I thought was really strange because we hadn't seen, we'd seen very little of him. And then all of a sudden he's like a big baddie that's fighting for Ramsey as if he gives a crap, <laughs> which I thought was kind of strange. Yeah, it's, it's, he's built up very quickly. And I did think that there was a chance that he would still be loyal there. I liked the way that they used him in a certain sense that when he comes over the hill and he sees John. It's one of those things where it's like, oh, these are two named characters. Let's see them fight. And it's totally interrupted. And I thought that was a a nice way of the show saying like, no, this isn't about like the two knights going at it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and having their duel. John's just going to get trampled here and Umber's going to get knocked out and he gets back up eventually and is in this like very close quarters fight with Tormund. But the John-Umber fight doesn't happen. Yeah. So it seems to be going really badly for everyone until there's a horn blast out of nowhere mm-hmm. and in come all of the Knights of the Vale. Yeah, this is when John has sort of climbed his way out of the thing, mm-hmm. has a very sort of a Misa moment. Yes. Where he sort of emerges from the pile and is reborn in a sense. And the skies are starting to clear a little bit and that's when you're able to see the, the Knights of the Vale start to come over the hill and just crush Ramsey's shield men from behind where they're unguarded and break their lines. And it is really satisfying, but you also feel, I think, that like so many people had to die before this happened. Mm-hmm. And Sansa really has this look on her face like, I did this, Yeah, which will get more complicated in, in the next episode, I think. But she seems pretty proud of herself considering how many people just died. Right. Probably pretty unnecessarily. Right. The tides have shifted here, and all of Ramsey's soldiers are either getting killed or running away. And uh, John, who is very dirty at this point, spots uh, Ramsey and his flag bearers heading back to Winterfell. He and one one and Torment to pursue. Sansa sees this happening and seems like she's into it. Like she's, or she seems like she wants to see what happens here. Yeah. I think her her perspective with John here is really interesting because they almost I feel like I feel like they have an exchange. Maybe they don't have an exchange yet, but she's definitely like watching him to see right. what he does. Right. Almost like he's this tool in the game, and Sansa's the one playing it in a certain sense. And she's like, "Oh, let's see where he goes." Right. I think that's right because Ramsay and sort of our other ideas of battles that the commander is the one who sits on top of the hill and directs the people who run below Mm -hmm. and in that case Sansa is the one who's sitting on the hill and John is the one running so he does seem like the pawn and she seems like she's maybe in command right but you know John sees it differently right John Mm -hmm. sees it as well the commander of the battle should be leading the fight right so he has this kind of sense of like what a commander is yeah I think 
that also really comes into play in the next episode about Mm -hmm. what does it mean to lead and who's responsible for accomplishing things on a battlefield. Mm -hmm. Ramsey is not ready to give up. He says that we have Winterfell. He thinks that they're going to be able to defend against a siege until Woon Woon breaks down the gate. Yeah, I mean, in theory, he's not wrong, but they're not ready. Like, there's there are too many forces already storming things to to hold them back. And they don't... I mean, Winterfell in the show is not quite as impenetrable a fortress as it is in the books, mm-hmm. where there's, like, walls and outer walls and moats and trenches mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff that'd be, like... You'd have to get through a lot to get into there. This is a big wooden door, very heavy for a normal person, but one one's able to... Punch through it. Yeah. But then he gets it. He gets a lot of arrows and finally one in the eye from Ramsay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's that's the, the end of one one. John picks up a Mormont mm-hmm. shield. Why would there be a Mormont shield up there? I don't know, but <laughs> there's a Mormont shield in the yard. And so he defends himself from Ramsay's arrows and ends up getting in close and uh, beating him almost to death. Yeah. Not quite. And then that's when he and Sansa exchange a look. Mm-hmm. And I think what's supposed to be conveyed is he's mine by yeah. Sansa. <laughs> like, leave him to me. And then there's the the dog scene, which is horrible, but also so satisfying in a way because you hear fear for the first time in Ramsay's voice, which mm-hmm. is nice after all the things that he's done to other people. Yeah. I liked seeing the behind the scenes of this. Though I didn't quite understand. They're like, yeah, these these dogs are really dangerous. Like, we had to be, like, not on the set. They had, like, remote. Everything was, like, done remotely. Yeah. I don't know. Where are they getting these dogs? Like From actual fighting pits or something? I don't know. But then instead of, like, a face, they have what looks like a deflated volleyball or something (laughs) that the dog is actually, like, chewing on when it would be the, the part where it grabs Ramsey's face. Yeah, I was surprised that they used dogs that were so dangerous. Mm-hmm. I sort of assumed that they were just dogs that were trained to do that sort of thing, but were all otherwise like right. dogs that you could be around. Because you normally, I mean, they kind of look like pit bull sorts mm-hmm. of dogs. And those, you know, there's there's all the, the stereotypes about those dogs that they're, oh, those are mean, they're junkyard dogs mm-hmm. and this kind of stuff. But I believe I remember this happening and I would not be, I was not surprised. You know, people who are advocates for pit bulls were like, you know, pit bulls are not, they're not mean dogs people train them to be mean and so i don't know it's certainly a poetic justice for ramsey's character who is all this built up history with the dogs and having Mm -hmm. them tear people apart that that is pretty fitting that that's the way he goes and also in a very real way getting his comeuppance that he uses people and he doesn't think that he can cross a line Mm -hmm. into where people won't fear or do what he wants and she's like you're the one who starved them. That's why they're going to eat you. So that feels particularly fitting in a way that sometimes the deaths in Game of Thrones, like Joffrey's is a great example of when it happens, you want it to happen, but there's something like kind of off about it. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's true with Ramsay. I think that like the punishment fits the crime and it's like absolutely as a result of his own sins, right? It's like he gets this, I think you said like poetic mm-hmm. end where other people, even if they're killed, it's like for the wrong reason or in a way that doesn't exactly fit the situation. Yeah. I think some people could, I could see, this isn't my opinion, but I feel like I could see some people having the argument of like, oh, we don't want to see Sansa as like this vindictive person who takes joy in even an evil person's sort of gory, gruesome death, but she definitely does. Yeah. And, you know, I think that might be telling of, of perhaps some angles that they're proposed in the, the, the forthcoming books 
that Sansa maybe takes some darker turns with her character and is is willing to to go dark. But I think in the show they've in the show they've pushed Sansa into the dark. But I feel like sometimes, in, in, at least what I have heard from stuff in the books is a little bit more of like Sansa's making these choices. Mm-hmm. This is almost feels like wouldn't any, like wouldn't you like it just feels very very much like a natural response. Yeah. I also, what I like, and I know that at the time people were sort of worried about it, that he says, you can't kill me, I'm a part of you now. Mm-hmm. And everyone was like, oh no, she's pregnant, right? Yeah. But maybe what he means is now you're going to sadistically enjoy watching someone's death, right? Mm-hmm. Something that wouldn't have been true of her before, that because of what he's done to her, it has changed her as a person. And now she's enjoying the way that he used to enjoy, someone being ripped limb from limb by dogs. Mm-hmm. So that seems to be a way that it's that he's right and it's actually the evidence is right after he says it is that like she has changed and it is because of him and it's so much better than a pregnancy plot oh man i'm so happy they didn't do it i would have yeah i was <laughs> i would hate it i would hate i would have hated that I would too. hate it please don't and i'm glad they didn't yeah no i think it was smart for them to unless they it, bring it back in season eight. Oh, she just didn't show for a long she time didn't show yeah surprise belated baby mm-hmm. and it's ramsey's yeah no one needs that no um, Absolutely not. Yeah. The Boltons are gone. She said as much. Yeah. Let them be gone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just thinking about that makes me tired. <laughs> well, before we move on to the to the next episode, I'll have a little bit of a brighter spot here. In the, the Game Revealed mm-hmm. segment for these two episodes, the intro part of that, they show just like uh, a lot of different shots at various stages of their production, like CGs, like partially in and all this kind of stuff. It's like concept shots and mock-ups and mm-hmm. things like that. Back in Marine, when Danny's flying around on the dragon, there's a very, very brief shot at the beginning of the intro to this featurette where they have footage of Daenerys flying around on the dragon, <laughs> but without the dragon. I did see that. It was and so it funny. hilarious. Because this is an ongoing thing for me that I just think is so funny is uh, sometimes uh, you see people on like uh, like Harley motorcycles and I just envision them what they look like without the motorcycle with like their legs you know and arms all forward and flying forward on the street and as they fly and this is basically what Daenerys looks like like flying around like some squatting superhero. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I remember seeing that and laughing. Well, thank you for reminding me of that because I was just so exhausted from the idea of a of a baby plot with Sansa. Yeah. Um, no, but think about Danny flying around. Uh, I am refreshed. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but I guess that's that's Battle of the Bastards, I, and we'll probably have a little bit more to say about it as we talk about some of these other plots um, and how the the Winterfell stuff shakes out in the aftermath in episode ten. But there's a lot else to take in in episode ten, so perhaps we should uh, do a recap of that one if you don't mind. All right. Everyone in King's Landing gets ready for Loras's and Cersei's trial. Loras confesses Kyburn's little birds kill Pycelle, and Cersei blows up the Sept, killing the High Sparrow, Loras, Mace, Marjorie, Tyrell, and Uncle Kevin. She and the Mountain torture Septa and Tommen commit suicide. Jamie resents being compared to Walder Frey, and Sam and Gilly arrive at Old Town. Sam is admitted to the library, but Gilly and the baby have to wait in the lobby. Davos confronts Melisandre with Shireen's death, and Jon banishes her south. Sansa and Jon have an unsatisfying conversation about those Knights of the Vale. Elena and the Sand Snakes are in Dorne, and surprise, Varys is there to represent Danny. Meanwhile, Daenerys is breaking up with Dario and making Tyrion Hand of the Queen. Arya feeds Walder Frey his sons and cuts his throat. 
Littlefinger tells Sansa his dream is sitting on the Iron Throne with her at his side, and Bran revisits the Tower of Joy to see baby John, born to his Aunt Lyanna, and Ned's promise to keep him safe. The Northern Lords name John King of the North. Littlefinger and Sansa share a look. Cersei is crowned Queen of the Seven Kingdoms, and she and Jaime share a look. Daenerys, with Theon, Yara, Tyrion, Missandei, Grey Worm, and Varys head to Westeros on lots of ships. They all share looks. Yeah. There's so many characters in, like, individual scenes in this. It's kind of absurd. Yeah, I'm sorry. I feel like I, I couldn't even get into the meat of a lot of what they do just because I needed to say, like, this happens. Yeah. We go here. We go here. I mean, there's a lot of, like, bullet points to hit for sure. So I thought we might just continue on with the North because that will might keep things a little bit clearer in our brains. I think it starts out with John complaining to Melisandre that he didn't get to sit up at the table yeah. when there were banquets. Uh-huh. Well, she says, well, at least... At least you had banquets. Yeah, right? you Those, had food, Jon yeah. Snow. Davos comes in. Finally, now he's got an opportunity to confront Melisandre about Shireen's death. He's incensed about this, and rightfully so. And I think, again, to, he comes to this point where he accuses Melisandre of lying to everybody. Melisandre says, I didn't lie, I was wrong. Re- kind of repeats similar language to what she was telling John before the battle, which is sort of like, I am just really a vessel for the Lord of Light. I make these decisions based on this. We were sort of had no other choice. And Davos retorts, which I think is a really, uh, I don't know, a really strong line that I like from him where he says, like, if, if your god tells you to burn children, your god is evil. Mm-hmm. And... This is a really interesting way of complicating John's resurrected form here in particular. Why he was brought back is the Lord of Light. I mean, we we talked about a little bit where things like Bran and the Three-Eyed Raven and this older power that has a real darkness to it is also evident in R'hllor and and its followers there too, where there's like this old way of doing things that is extremely brutal mm-hmm. and it's uncaring and it, it's it's all kind of like shrouded in in a mystery as well it's, it's sort of like where does this will come from it, it's very like hard to understand and decipher and that sort of inscrutability absolves people from in theory having to like live with the the mistakes that they made so melisandre here had made a horrible mistake and she's only able to pass it off as like, well, so did Stannis, and so did Selyse. And you're like, yeah, but so did you. Yeah, and also, which I think is really unfair to Selyse's memory, mm-hmm. because she was howling with pain and wanted to stop it and then killed herself because right. they burned Shireen. Right, so she wasn't able to live with it, right? Melisandre is able to live with it. She got really sad, but yeah. she's all right. Yeah, and she's already picked a new prince who was promised or mm-hmm. new Azor High, so she's fine. Yeah. And John really lets her off the hook. He just sends her south and it's like, don't come back in the north again or I'll kill you. And Davos is like, if I see you again in the north, I'll kill you. It's like, okay, well, yeah. need that twice maybe. But <laughs> And then in the most recent season, she's trying to ingratiate herself with Daenerys and just hides from John and Davos. And so she, she really does seem to get off light. Although there's the hint that she will go to Essos and come back and die in Westeros because she can see her own future. I hope there's something big with her still to come in the last season and not just leave things kind of like, oh, we never saw Melisandre again. Yeah. But the really, I think in my recap, I called it unsatisfying conversation is the one between Sansa and Jon about the Knights of the Vale, mm-hmm. which 
If you want a really good rundown of it, I was looking at the Game of Thrones wiki, Mm -hmm. and they have this sort of two incompatible possibilities that either Sansa wrote to Littlefinger not thinking that he would actually bring them, bring Mm. the Knights of the Vale, and that she didn't have really any power over it, that it was not through her own agency that they arrived. Or it was totally of her own agency, but then it was not a noble thing to do, or it wasn't wasn't really beneficial to Jon and the other Northern Lords because she knowingly let them get slaughtered. Mm. And so that she can't both, it can't have both been noble and of her own volition. And so I, I really liked this breakdown because it's, it's a, complicated thing and I think everyone was really frustrated with why didn't why didn't she do it and what was her excuse and I guess at a panel she admitted someone asked and she said I don't know that the writers never told me and the WB were so drunk that they didn't even answer well they didn't also write an answer for John either (laughs) I think that that first idea that you had that's interesting I think it's the latter though I agree I agree because Littlefinger offered her the Knights of the Vale even before she asked. Mm-hmm. And so I think her like, maybe they won't come in time or maybe he won't maybe he won't agree. Maybe I don't really have this power. I don't think she doesn't seem to feel that way. And then so this feeling, especially in this episode, that she expects people to be so grateful to her. Mm-hmm. It's hard if one, she it wasn't really her, right? It was Littlefinger. Mm-hmm. Or if she waited long enough that so many people got killed, like what are we grateful to you for? Yeah. I mean, she was also seen pretty self-satisfied on that hill mm-hmm. when the Vale Knights were riding in. So that, to me, also says like she was in control of the situation to a certain degree. So she apologizes to John. Mm-hmm. She says, "I should have told you about the Knights of the Vale," and we're all like, "Yes." <laughs> <laughs> Do you have anything more to say? You should have, and she does not. And John's response is a pause. He lets the audience fill in their own thoughts here in this moment. And then he says, essentially, like, we can't keep fighting amongst ourselves. He he senses the trepidation that Sansa has about John being the one in charge. And this this conversation actually starts with John saying, "I've having the Lord's Chambers prepared for you, for Sansa." And so there's this back and forth that happens on the ramparts here, where it seems like they're both trying to like belittle their own position and mm-hmm. uh, sort of let the other one assert themselves more. Neither one really wants to take it. And so it seems like by the end of this, they're like, all right, we're, we're brother and sister. We're going to be a team. Then John is really more at fault in the end scenes mm-hmm. because, well, one, it's so sad when Lady Mormont is taking everyone to task and then says, you know, we, we have a leader. And Sansa's face makes it look like she thinks she thinks Lady Mormont is going to say Sansa. Mm-hmm. And she says, John. But John, who doesn't, I, I don't, who I had never given gotten the impression that he wanted to rule the North. They call him King of the North and he just stands up and just like, you're right, I'll do it. And Sansa's so upset. Yeah, I don't know. It's a weird, so if he if he's aware in this scene that Sansa is sort of fighting you for power. I feel like then he doesn't address it at all when then he's named King of the North at that at that later meeting. I feel like Sansa some of her initial looks to John when there when there's all this rabble about King of the North mm-hmm. is sort of she's sort of like okay, yeah, well, she's mm-hmm. it's not really I feel like until she sort of turns and gets a glimpse of Littlefinger's like his look at that says you're going to let this guy roll over you like this? Yeah. Where she's like, oh, oh, 
yeah, you're right. I shouldn't yeah. be into this. And there was a scene preceding this also with Littlefinger and John mm-hmm. in the Godswood where Littlefinger laid out what he wants very directly. Right. Which is that he sees himself on the Iron Throne with Sansa by his side. And to me, that Sansa then rejects his advances immediately after that is, you know, two things. It's one, it's like she's wise to Baelish and mm-hmm. he's, she's not going to fall for his his attempts here. And also I mean, she's probably not that into him anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, he's he's definitely uh, he's in the doghouse, as yeah. it were. But also the fact that his image is is him on the throne and her next to him says, OK, well, he's advocating for Sansa to assert herself to be the one in charge, but is then saying, my dream is to have you be my sidekick. Right. Also, I think if she's if she's smart, which I think she is, that he's probably going to get power if she it's easier to make her wardness of the north right now. Mm-hmm. If she controls the north, then he can levy or he can he can sort of use that power maybe to get himself the Iron Throne. And so she mm-hmm. may realize like, oh, I'm just I'm really a stepping stone. Like the way that he has collected titles and houses and stuff, part of it would be collecting a wife who's in charge of the north which is the yeah. largest kingdom there is right because in theory they've kind of forgotten that little finger in the show they've kind of forgotten that he's supposed to be the warden of the riverlands because mm-hmm. he's in, he's the lord of harrenhal right so he would in theory at this point have the riverlands the vale of course and also then potentially the, the north as well which would be a huge chunk mm-hmm. yeah anyway so that's that's the part that i was talking about at the, at the top of the show that I like so much, but then there's just that this hole that like was really this supposed to be this important moment in the last episode, and it never really gets satisfactorily explained and continues to be sort of a I think kind of a wobbly point because they won't come down one way or the other. Like, are John and Sansa fighting? Mm-hmm. Like, and they're like, well, maybe. And I'm like, no, but are they fighting? Yeah. And then like the way they deal with this next season is. John leaves before too long. Mm-hmm. So there's really only like a couple episodes of like the John and Sansa dynamic and how's this playing out. And then Arya takes it up on John's behalf, but it's a misdirect. Mm-hmm. So they still won't come out and say like, are we good? Or is there are, like, I don't know. You'd have to, yeah, you would imagine that at some point there would be some sort of a moment where this would like come back mm-hmm. and be like, you didn't tell me about the freaking letter. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> All my friends are dead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We lost so many men and I almost died. And you already, you knew that you had this whole force in your pocket. Yeah. This is just like that other, you know, there's no moment like that that's happened yet. (laughs) Can you imagine them at the dinner table? (laughs) And you always do this. (laughs) Yeah. And then at the very end, the, with all the Northern Lords calling King of the North, it's a real callback to to Rob, and I think it's supposed to maybe seem like a bad idea because that didn't go very well for Rob. Yeah, I think we're supposed to be in John's shoes here, which is reluctant because, of course, you're sheepish and you don't want to assume that you're good at anything, even though you're obviously like a god. But yeah, this doesn't go well for previous kings of the North, and it seems maybe a little like maybe we don't need to jump to kingship just yet. Can't I just be like? in charge a little bit it makes the northern lords look really stupid they basically had no idea who john was and they had Uh let him go up to the wall and like he let all the wildlings in they hated this guy Mm -hmm. and then there's one speech by a 10 year old and they're like we should make that guy king yeah it's like oh 
I think I am I'm probably like a Davos in this situation as I probably would be in most of the situations in this <laughs> show kind of going along with stuff um, yeah and being like oh these people this is kind of weird <laughs> like but he sees everybody like hoisting their swords up and like shouting it and he starts saying king in the north too and I was like, yeah, you know what? It would be fun to be in a chorus of people saying the king in the north. That does seem like a good time. Although, is this, as much as I liked the conversation between Davos and Tom and, or Davos and Tormund. Excuse me, Toman. <laughs> Tomond. <laughs> for talking about like, oh, well, Jon Snow's not a king. Mm-hmm. And then Davos is like, man, I can't wait to declare this man yeah. king. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty quick turnaround. Yeah. Yeah. And that one really ends on a... This isn't the end of the episode on this scene, but it's the, it's the end of our time with uh, at Winterfell and with these characters, and it ends on a uncomfortable note, mm-hmm. one that sort of sets up a tension to be addressed next season, which, again, we just talked about how it kind of and kind of not. Right, right. But part of this episode that I think is flawless is the opening. I love the opening. So you've got Cersei and Tommen and Marjorie and the High Sparrow, and everyone is getting ready for the trial, and you get to see all the little details of how their mornings are different, which is great. You've got, for the first time ever, just piano. It was never used as sort of a lone instrument, or maybe at all. I don't think there's been any piano. And the tension and the way that it's built with like with almost no dialogue, but just music mm-hmm. and the visuals is, is just perfect. It's all very like elegant and courtly mm-hmm. and like... The music plays into that too. It's a sort of dainty and like, oh, let's get our things together. And it's a little bit quiet, a little bit solemn, heading to work, but also heading to this, you know, this fate and this judgment mm-hmm. and this uh, thing that we've been fearing for so long for, for several of the characters. And they have a few different pauses. You know, there's, we come to Tommen in that, that very trademark way in the Red Keep, like looking through this latticework thing mm-hmm. in this cage, right? and soon to be prevented from leaving his chambers by the mountain while everybody else has already gathered and they're proceeding with Loras's trial. And Loras sort of gives up everything. He confesses to everything. He gives up his title. He gives up his lands. He decides to become a sparrow and they carve a star into his head. Implied that there was some sort of deal that was struck. Yeah, that's very explicit. Where Marjorie says, you mutilated him, we had a deal. And then, Mm -hmm. but the high sparrow says, after this, he's free to go. But how free is he? And Marjorie's the one who puts it together and keeps trying to warn the High Sparrow, which is feels like sort of maybe something sort of analogous to Sansa trying to warn John that you just have these women who who've got a better idea of what's going on mm-hmm. and that they're not really heated. Yeah, she she lays it out pretty pretty directly. Sort of like this is Cersei's trial. She's not here. She knows she's supposed to be here, and she's not here on purpose. Tommen's not here either. There's a reason for this. Mm-hmm. We should go. <laughs> yeah. This is, it can't be good. Meanwhile, Pycelle is getting led down into Kyburn's chambers by, under the auspice that Tommen was down there for some reason. Mm-hmm. And then the exchange that happens between Kyburn and Pycelle, where he reveals the little birds all have these knives and they're, gonna, they're going to kill Pycelle. Very um, corollary to the dialogue that happens in the books where Varys actually six his little birds on Kevin mm-hmm. Lannister. Pycelle in that instance is already dead. Kevin sees essentially uh, Pycelle whose, whose head has been crushed. And then this, this idea of like, it's a shame that we have nothing against you personally, but like sometimes for the, the new generation to rise, the old have to be done away with. 
Right. Also, there's another little bird who is trying to lure Lancel Lannister that he's told to, to go collect the queen. And then he decides, in a, in a way that's actually kind of weird to... I mean, maybe he's aware that this is a little bird. Yeah. But it's weird that he goes after this kid. It's a little puzzling. I've, the only thing was, like, I guess there was nobody else around, and he's this kid is running away from the steps. I don't know. I just feel like if it would have been... Couldn't the kid have just, like, thrown a rock at him or something? Yeah. <laughs> Although it does... I think the Church of the Seven really comes off in a bad light because you have Lancel who's threatening a child. He's like, you better come out of here. It's going to be worse for you. Mm-hmm. Or the way that they all barricade the people to stay in the sept when, mm-hmm. when people are panicking and wanting to leave. It, I mean, not, not maybe we've already gotten this idea before, but it's like, oh, this is this has taken a really bad turn that like people are, are sort of forced to stay in places against their will, mm-hmm. that you have members of the order who are like violent towards children, that these are not, the, the church has lost its way. <laughs> yes, perhaps a little um, up its own ass. Yeah. And so Lancel is led down essentially in some sort of serpentine fashion to be underneath the sept where he came out of. And he is stabbed in the leg by a little bird or slashed or somehow wounded with a knife, which apparently is enough to pretty much paralyze him. I guess it, presumably maybe that maybe it was a poison blade that has a very quick effect. That's that is possible. Otherwise, it seems a little crazy that he can't move a little faster, um, that that his leg is that hurt. It certainly makes for a dramatic effect as he drags himself along. A little unclear why he's dragging himself also at first, but further and further until he finally sees these candles in the wildfire that are almost to the point where they're ready to ignite it. And when when it finally goes boom, the effect is huge. Yeah, it's a big CG fest of green fire explosions. Well, actually, the, the original fire explosions were real fire that then they colored green later similarly to how they did it in the battle of the black water when mm-hmm. they had the wildfire there where they it was kind of a cool shot they they explained how they did it um where the fire was the barrels were exploding down the hallway they actually shot that fire vertically because that's how fire would work fire wouldn't explode mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i mean unless you were really doing it which that would be kind of crazy to do so they simulate what that fire looks like by having it go up this chute and then they just essentially turn the footage on its side so it looks like it's bursting forward down the hallway coloring it green of course and adding all the different little cg particles as everything blows apart and then everything yeah blows up real good yeah the high sparrow gets a little bit of wind under his sack (laughs) yeah someone gets crushed by a bell and then I think, but some of the best parts of the shot are Cersei and Tommen watching from yeah. the Red Keep that for such a huge explosion, I mean, it looks big, but it's almost just like a, yeah, right? There are so many lives and it was just like, mm-hmm. and Cersei is so pleased with herself, takes a little sip of wine and Tommen is devastated. Yeah. Cersei like moves back a little from the window and just has like this nice little breeze that seems to like hit at her. Mm-hmm. Just like very, very, oh, yes, very satisfied. Yeah. Exactly how I wanted. Yeah, Tommen, less so. Yeah, yeah. And he eventually, it's very, I mean, it's sad, but also the way that he removes his crown is like this very sort of ritualistic move before his death, and he and he jumps from his window. Yeah, Take, go, jumps off the ledge. And when Cersei sees Tommen's body, her, I thought her response is so callous. She says, she says, burn it. Mm-hmm. Because I guess probably her entire family was probably buried in this in this great sept, 
And so she was like, she said something about put him with his his brother and his sister and his grandfather burn it and so mm-hmm. maybe the idea that she blew up all of their bodies as well yeah she said burn him and and bury the ashes where the sept used to yeah. used to stand I, you know i think they mentioned this in the, the after the show thing but i also just i think it's pretty telling you know that cersei is essentially like this is the point where she just becomes like a, a shell of herself like she's becomes sort of empty the things that she was sort of that were giving her the will to continue on, the will to continue to better her house and, and herself was was her children and with them gone, what is left? It's just sort of like, okay, well, now it's just personal ambition. And yeah. so if that's it, then I'll just take it for myself and we'll keep riding this. She gets more sadistic. She captures Unella, tortures her using uh, the mountain, mm-hmm. gives her some wine boarding yeah which sounds like there would be like a charcuterie thing but (laughs) but way less pleasant yeah so cersei has really given into all of her worst impulses and has lost everything but you're right has sort of emptied herself and has become a shell and i think that's why when jamie comes back to winterfell or excuse me when jamie comes back to king's landing he seems so horrified and sort of like who is this person who's getting crowned yeah, he doesn't even seem like he recognizes her anymore. And that's a, I think that one does a really nice job of setting up, you know, the tension for next season between those two characters. Yeah. I also think we were talking about the the other coronation that happens, the King of the North, that both of them, they happen, but they do not feel right. Mm-hmm. That a lot of the other times there's something triumphant about someone being crowned. But both John in the North and Cersei in King's Landing, you don't feel like these are good really good things for anyone right the one thing that i did look up i mean there's a number of both with the battle of the bastards last episode and things that happened in this one like correlations to to real world events the, this is the one that i'll mention here is the something that was called the gunpowder plot of 1605 apparently some uh, radical members of the catholic church were going to try and blow up a uh, parliament hmm. with uh, king james and his sons inside but the plot was discovered before it could happen so is that Guy Fox? I don't know. Because I think Kit Harrington was also on an HBO show called Gunpowder, which sounds like it might have been this this plot. Funny. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that, but yeah. that's, that's interesting. He's just interesting. in everything. Interesting. He was also in a terrible movie about Pompeii. That's true. A documentary, <laughs> even. <laughs> I think we're going to have to... We're going to jump all over the place with this. There's just so many things to hop on. I know we mm-hmm. talked about Jamie in the throne room, but... Before he gets there, right, he's into twins with the phrase. and He's very grumpy. Yeah. The transition to the phrase is immediately after Tommen falls from the window. So we don't have that scene with Cersei and and Tommen's body until later. So we go immediately, and actually it's even a little bit over, the voice is a little bit overlaid while we're still looking at the empty window where Tommen uh, fell from. And it's Walder Frey saying, for House Lannister. Mm -hmm. So it's this... This is a real disconnect, and, and that sentiment of the phrase sort of overplaying their friendship with the Lannisters and their common cause and their kinship and all yeah. the, these things that they have in common to Jamie while he, while they're sitting together is uh, you know is recurring throughout the scene. And Jamie really dislikes the parallels that are being drawn, especially between he and Walder Frey. That we've both killed kings. Mm-hmm. We don't care what people say about us, which is not well, not really true about either of them because mm-hmm. Walder Frey actually 
takes insults very keenly and like nurses those grudges yeah. for his whole life. And then Jamie cares a lot about what people say about him, even if he says that he doesn't. Yeah, it's an unflattering connection to be made, and uh, it's not it's not altogether untrue, right? So it's I think Jamie's a little bit upset that he could be seen. Mm -hmm. is not very different from the phrase and who wants to be seen as anything like the phrase right nobody so he insults walter frey about has he ever fought any battles there's a conversation about what does it really mean to like be to be victorious right then i think there's this conflict maybe a little bit with sansa and john as well like are you victorious because you fought the battle or because you've like beaten your enemies and gotten what you wanted Mm -hmm. There's a, we also have Arya in disguise, of course, uh, walking out. We don't know this at the time, but there is actually a there's a tell here. I didn't pick up on this honestly. I read it. What was but it? She says, "My lord," instead of "my lord." Oh, which was something that that Tywin had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the fact that she doesn't say "my lord," which would have been more the the dialect of somebody who'd be lowborn as opposed to a highborn lady like like Arya, who says "my lord," it's kind of mm-hmm. Gives it away, but it's, yeah, you know, none of the other characters pick up on it. It's just sort of a hint for the audience. And she just keeps giving Jamie the eye, but it's yeah. not what Bronn thinks it is. Right. I wonder what she is thinking, though. What do you think she thinks about Jamie at this point? Because they might see one another next season, almost definitely. Yeah, I don't know. She might be considering how culpable he is. Mm-hmm. I mean... Roose Bolton stuck a knife into Rob Stark saying Jamie Lannister sends his regards, mm-hmm. even though that's not what Jamie meant. But yeah, I think she's probably assessing his culpability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's the other thing that Walder does when he's giving the toast. He said, again, it's like the phrase have like no original ideas. It's just like everything is like borrowed and stolen from somewhere mm-hmm. else. So they're like, we tell anybody that the, the Lannisters and the phrase send their <laughs> regards. Like, yeah, that's. That's a great turn of phrase. Thank you, Walder. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. No, I, but I, I like that. I also, I've really felt it in the last episodes where, about the Siege of River Run, where the, the costume designer has made the phrase look purposely stupid. Yes. Um, so I just, I love it. <laughs> like, they're the worst house. They're the, yeah. Um, Their sigil should be like the wet dog. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and and they've got the, their dumb hats and just like so many, I don't know. It's it's great, but I love that that's how they've conveyed it. And you're mm-hmm. right that he he only copies from other people, but Walter Frey sure gets his. Yeah, uh, we if we want to cut to later where Arya in disguise serves Walder Frey uh, a pie made out of his sons. I think it's I Black Walder and Lothar. Both sons. I, I think maybe. So. Yeah, probably. We only see a single digit. I don't know if it was a thumb or That's a toe. True. She then reveals herself. You know, Arya Stark, I'm going to kill you. The last thing mm-hmm. you're going to see is is a Stark face uh, smiling down on you, which is true. Um, mm-hmm. She grabs him, slits his throat, holds him there to make sure that he can't hold the blood from, from getting out. And then uh, she's in awe and is sort of uh, impressed with herself, sort of aghast, but mm-hmm. not in a horrified way, in like a... Oh, yeah. I did it. That this, felt, this great. felt great. Yeah. 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 It's a little, I mean, her smile is maybe reminiscent of Sansa walking away from Ramsay. Mm-hmm. These, like, it gets dark when you, it's for a show that is so much about revenge, and we're like, yeah, get it. Mm-hmm. That it is disconcerting when someone looks happy about having murdered someone. Yeah. And it's, how do we view these characters differently? Because we'll have Sansa gets her revenge, Cersei gets her revenge, mm-hmm. Arya gets her revenge, and they're all essentially killing of some kind mm-hmm. 
Cersei also killed like 200 something other people <laughs> right other than the people that she particularly wanted dead but yeah there there there's a certain amount of revenge plots coming to fruition across these two episodes we have sam and gilly arriving at old town which we get to see old town so that's kind of neat we see the 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 white rate are they white ravens in the show white ravens we do see them this episode but i couldn't tell if the things that were flocking if those were just seagulls i can't remember i thought that was them like releasing the birds or whatever you're probably um, right because i because sam is supposed to like look concerned that it's actually winter i mean i like sam who has his sword wrapped up in like a ups package that definitely says i have a sword in here <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> it's like this cross-shaped thing <laughs> And, you know, the, the Citadel is it, it's, it's kind of this comical scene of, of bureaucracy. And the only thing I had note of there as far as production goes is that the, the character who plays this actor is actually this Dutch actor who's in a, it was in a, a sitcom actor. And so the, the showrunners just really liked him in, in whatever show he was in. So they, they brought him in to do this part. And actually all of his lines were overdubbed because his English isn't very good. Hmm. So... I didn't notice. I, I noticed it on the last line that always felt really awkward to me where he says no women or children allowed, mm-hmm. where they kind of have that happen like his face isn't on camera, but they kind of turn back to it just at the end of the phrase. And then there's a little bit like a moment of disconnect where they're like, I don't think those words were coming out of his mouth. <laughs> Turns out they were. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but they don't. he doesn't have too many lines anyway. It's mainly staring and, uh, and not moving. <laughs> and making Sam stretch. Mm-hmm. Well, that sort of reminds me of something that's happening in the next scene in Dorne. So you've got this conversation, Elena's in Dorne, and she's talking to the Sand Snakes, and she's being very snippy with everyone as Mm -hmm. she does. So I guess this was something done purposely by the writers, which shows they are petty AF, (laughs) that I guess they got a lot of complaints about Tyene's dialogue, right? It is sort of famously bad. Mm -hmm. She whispers sort of weird stuff into Bronze ear about you want a good girl, that sort of thing. And it, it's like, it's very awkward uh-huh. whenever she speaks. And so they purposely did not let her have a line yeah. for this, where Olena's like, nothing from you. And she opens her mouth and she says, good. And I feel like that is so punishing for the actress. It is not her fault that you wrote her garbage dialogue. So I thought I, I read that and I'm just like, you guys are awful. Yeah. But it's it's your fault that she had that dialogue. It's not her fault. You don't have to take away that actress's lines. Right. I mean, I like Quippy Olema. That's that's fun. Yeah. And she's at the end of her rope here. You know, they're they're talking about sort of reasserting power of the houses, and she's like, I'm I'm past that. Mm-hmm. Like they've taken everything from me. And this is where they pull some fun lines from the books. A much more satisfying turn on the Doran plot where Ariane Martel and Doran Martel are having this conversation after this failed kidnapping plot where they were going to crown Princess Marcella as as queen. And Doran is like, stop messing this stuff up. I have a secret plan. <laughs> yeah. And you're ruining it. And she's like, well, you know, what's this going, what, what is this going to get for us? And he says, anything your heart desires, vengeance, justice, fire and blood is is the key. And that's like, the stinger at the end that's mm. like oh a targaryen alliance he actually you know has right. this this is before we know what his uh, son quentin is up to going to daenerys and essos but nope they've just kind of repurposed the stuff here they give varies the actual fire and bloodline which it makes sense mm-hmm. um this is the secret mission that varies was on building these alliances mm-hmm. so here's the payoff to that 
Yeah. Although it has almost no payoff in the most recent season. But yeah. at the time, it felt like, ooh, she's going to have a lot of support. And I'm looking at this picture. I think that they're in a different location than where they were last hmm. year. I mean, they're only there for all of two minutes total in this right. uh, across right. it's this really entire short. season. And while Varys is busy doing that, Danny is busy breaking up with Dario, which there's so many weird things about it. Because I feel like Dario's argument for not being broken up with is really convincing. Especially, like, they're just trying to free her up for John. But it doesn't, because he's, he's like, I don't need, we don't need to get married. I can just hang out. And she's like, oh, you'll be my mistress. And he's like, I don't. I don't care. Yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm like, why did you not bring him? Also, when he, she, when she's like, I'm leaving you in charge, he goes, fuck Marine, fuck the people. And I'm like, you're leaving him in charge? I don't know. I just thought that breakup was really strange. Yeah. He it, he does have some good points. I, I thought, I was like, why are you breaking up with him? Unless you knew there was a Jon Snow across the ocean. Yeah. He, Dario says, you'll get that throne you always wanted. I hope it brings you happiness. It's like it's probably won't. Yeah. And so you know he makes he makes a pretty good case here. Yeah, leaving Dario in charge of Marine. They do say, and I did not remember this. She says you will essentially help people sort of pick their own leader. You're like overseeing elections. Yeah. Which still, no, he's not. Yeah. Dario's not. <laughs> Dario's not the head of like the election commission. Yeah. I yeah. can't see him sitting there. At the voting desk, voting booth, with uh, all of his papers, and be like, what's your last name? Having everyone, like, dip their finger and die to make sure they only vote once. Oh, another Mo Resnick. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that I thought was weird. And the only time where I'm like, Dario is actually making a lot of sense right now. Mm-hmm. And then what I thought was really funny when Daenerys comes in to see Tyrion, he goes, it's actually happening. Like, we're actually going to Westeros. It's been six seasons. Yeah. But it's actually happening. Yeah, he's had a few of those moments when we had, the, uh, in contrast to the one, was that this season where they burned the ships? Or was the end of last? Or was that last season? Oh, we're, man. Where he's like, forgetting. we won't be going to Westeros <laughs> anytime soon. Yeah. yeah. He's like, now it's actually happening. It's like, okay, yes. Yeah. You're feeding the lines directly to the audience. And in this this time, I feel like from his face... He is totally in love with Daenerys, mm-hmm. right? There's something about when they're speaking, when she's making him hand of the queen, his face is just so enamored that I wonder if that explains a little bit why he was so upset to see John go into her cabin in the boat mm-hmm. in the end of the seventh season, because he seems totally taken with her. Yeah. I don't know what I think about her reactions to the Dario thing, though. Like, she talks about how she just wanted it to be over. She doesn't really care. She doesn't feel anything. It. Like she thought, she thought that she liked him, but she just wanted mm. to break up and have it. Yeah, I guess. Well, okay. are, are they trying to just? I yeah. I I mean, why have that dialogue? Are they trying to show that she's not very broken up about it? I guess. I don't know what about Daenerys changed that would make her think this way now, especially when <laughs> Dario. You know, Dora's gone. Dario is essentially the one left that came to save her, and I don't know. It's no. I I agreed that I thought it was kind of weird. And that's what I mean, that I feel like they only had the breakup scene so that she could be available. Yeah. And that in terms of her character, it doesn't make that much sense. It makes me wish that they were actually going to bring Dario back in some capacity next season. I don't know that they will. I thought that maybe this was going to have something to do with the Golden Company mm-hmm. that Cersei was hiring. I know they've um, they've cast somebody to be Harry Strickland hmm. for that, but it's not 
it's it's another actor, right? It's yeah. not it's not Dario, but I thought maybe there would be something where he would either show up as the head of that company or in in that company and somehow that, be opposed. I guess that could happen that mm-hmm. he could he could be a part of the company and then pull what he did with the second sons and bring Danny the head of the commanders. Yeah. But he's already kind of done that. Yeah. This also though the the scene with Dario and the idea of setting up a, a system where Marine will elect their own leader is that's a baby step to where they'll get next season where Tyrion talks about, oh, maybe the Ironborn have their own way of selecting the leader. The Night's Watch have another and getting this idea of like having a, a democratic election mm-hmm. that somehow determines the leader. So she had flirted with that beforehand, apparently at this point, but they toss it off so quickly I, I'm hesitant to ascribe too much credit to it. Yeah. Also, does she only allow elections in cities that she's not the queen? Right? Like, right. she wasn't, she didn't seem to be interested in having elections when she was in charge, just right. now that she's leaving. So yeah. I wonder if it'd be the same in Westeros. She'd be like, oh, we can have elections after I'm dead. <laughs> I get to be queen while I'm alive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That'll be interesting to watch because. That's something about the sensibilities of the, the audience is that we prefer democracy, right? That mm-hmm. we, or at least we say we do. I don't know. Maybe we actually prefer <laughs> like kings and queens with superpowers. The king in the north. Yeah. <laughs> Can't wait to get my sword and just declare There's, someone king. All I want is to declare the king in the north. Yeah. So Bran, who seems fully in robot mode now, mm-hmm. is, I'm the three-eyed raven now. <laughs> I have to be ready. Yeah, and he goes back to the Tower of Joy with Ned running up to see his sister Lyanna, who's mm-hmm. in a bed of blood with Arthur Dane's star and meteorite sword over the bed. That's important for some prophecy mm-hmm. for John. But yeah, I mean, I think it was it was a really good moment for, for book readers, I think, or just like a confirmation. I don't know if, if you were just watching the show, I don't know how important that, if there was really a question so much about John's parentage. Yeah. That probably felt like it came out of nowhere if you just watched the show. It precedes him being named King in the North, which then perhaps has, has those implications. I like the way they reveal this here, but then with the way they will roll out more information later mm-hmm. that... Bran, for whatever reason, didn't seem to like know, like listen and hear the name. Right, the name thing. The name thing was weird because they wanted to break it up into two reveals: one that John was Lyanna and Rhaegar's son, and then they wanted to have it be a whole different reveal that he was a legitimate son. Right, and then the rightful king. Yeah. So, in some ways, there's not too much here that wasn't in the previous Tower of Joy stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just kind of actually seeing up in the tower, seeing Lyanna that. We hadn't, we hadn't, we'd only heard. Yeah, it's it's kind of uh, kept from the audience when she gets into the, to whisper, then it's it's out of our earshot, and then we hear promise me and this kind of stuff. It was a lot of speculation at the time, like, oh, what's the name? Is it Jaharis? Is mm-hmm. it, I don't know. And I, at first I thought, like, yeah, Jaharis, that makes sense. But watching it this time, it's like, eh, I don't know. It doesn't really look like that either. It just looks yeah. like, it doesn't look like Aegon either, to be honest, though. <laughs> uh, who knows what they told her to say. Yeah. Yeah, that that's his name. So yeah, that was that was self felt like something that needed to be checked off the list, but sort of loses its punch after you see it the first time. Yeah, you're like, oh yeah, no, that's John. So yeah, let's go. Come on, <laughs> we know. Yeah, and then the sort of last big thing is is the ending where all of Daenerys's forces, including apparently some very sea ready Dothraki yes. who are helpful on boats, all of a sudden 
that they're they're going across. Yeah, it's a big CG shot. Yeah, we we get to see the whole crew here. There's obviously been some sort of time lapse that's happened where Varys has gotten back over there with ships from the Reach, mm-hmm. ships from Dorne, um, who are still using the Martell banner for some reason. Iron Islander ships. Oh yes, ships. of course. Yeah. Yeah. And then, actually, I like I like when that how they cut to this, mm-hmm. which is this little squid flag flapping in the wind. It's sort of very, it's a kraken. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's very like thin fabric, and it's yeah. It, the, the the sun is shining through it, and only like after a few moments does it really seem like it picks up the wind and, and reveals itself. And Theon's looking at it, you know, essentially proud of himself for maybe the first time in a good long while. Yeah. So. He feels like he's doing the right thing. And, uh, yeah, we get to kind of scan over everything and see the whole crew there. Yeah. Big, big armada. And big dragons. There's just a whole... There's a, it looks like a huge... It looks like a huge force, which is sort of amazing mm-hmm. in the seventh season how that gets cut down really fast. Yeah. But the way that she's going to Westeros in this episode, she looks like she's got everything she needs. Yeah. There was another fun making of shot in this one that... I don't really don't think I don't even know that they intended to have this in the shot but when they're on this boat they're showing like Tyrion walking up to what will be his like his mark Mm -hmm. and there's another person there and he has the word Tyrion taped to his forehead (laughs) what yeah this is this isn't in the episode no no it's not oh okay this is in the making of okay (laughs) Uh, it's just a brief like behind the scenes thing (laughs) But okay, I'll have to look for it's that. It's a man here. I'm going to turn my computer around so you can see it. <laughs> okay. That's really funny. I thought you were saying that it was something that had accidentally been left in the episode. No. <laughs> that there's someone with the name no, that'd Tyrion be funny. across forehead. their forehead. That'd be pretty good. Supposedly, when in the, in the last episode, when the, the dragon comes down to land next to Daenerys, supposedly, and I didn't go back to make sure this was the case, but supposedly there's a member of the crew that you can see. Hmm. walking behind the dragon from left to right. Okay, that's look not for, quite... Look for that for those of you who are re-watching these episodes. That's not quite as good as someone with Tyrion no, across their quite. forehead. <laughs> but I was like... I was going to be really surprised if that had actually accidentally been left in the episode. Well, that was the season six finale. Yeah, pretty big finale. You know, to have these two episodes really... I don't know, bring season six kind of out of the muck a bit. I mean, yeah. it's, it's mired in some other problems, um, especially episode 10 is not perfect in a lot of ways, but has a lot of satisfying moments and just a lot of moments in yeah. it, period. Right. This is where it sort of feels like you're watching it on fast forward because there's just so much going on. Yeah. And, you know, it's it sets up a lot of excitement for season seven at that point. Right? It's kind of... So many wheels set in motion. So many things left lingering. They find a nice resting place yeah. here for a lot of the stuff, which is to have a lot of resolutions, but a lot of ongoing tensions. So every time there's somebody like Arya killing Walder Frey, it's still like, where's she going to go next? Oh, Arya is kind of messed up at this point. Yeah. <laughs> the way yeah. that she like yeah. looks at this. Uh, I wonder if she's going to be okay. You know, Sansa and John, like, mm-hmm. they get rid of the Boltons, but now there's this new thing happening. Yeah. You know, of course, the White Walkers are coming, which yeah. we haven't seen them for um, all so, season? Yeah, I think you're right. I don't think we've had a White Walker this season. Yeah. Cersei and Jamie, you're sort of like, what's going on there? Mm-hmm. 
I don't think we're given any idea that Sam is going to hate it at the Citadel. But no, that that really takes a turn. But we only like we were barely there. Yeah, Sam was really barely in this season. Poor guy. But yeah, I think most things left on a really good, like you said, a good resting place. It's like we'll take a pause here and then we'll be able to pick it back up. Mm-hmm. So that's going to bring us to a close for those. Are, we've analyzed all of the episodes. <laughs> yeah, every single one of them. I, sometimes I thought, especially with ones like this, I was like, maybe we should have done this in two, <laughs> each episode separately, because yeah. there's so much to get through. It's a little daunting. But there are plenty of others where I was like very happy that we did them in pairs, right. especially because there's this correlation between the two yeah. as they started having the directors work in pairs of episodes. It made sense to talk about them in twos. But sometimes when they're big ones like this, it's a lot to get through. <laughs> yeah. But we did it. Yeah. And we did all of them. So mm. where do we go from here? We're going to have a few more. It's almost spring break. So yeah. have everybody have fun with spring break. We're going to have uh, some special episodes the same way we did our holiday specials for the first three seasons. We're going to do some more special episodes, kind of mini shorter ones for seasons four through six. And then uh, we'll have another one final wrap-up episode before we uh, have our hiatus for a while. And we'll talk about all the the plans for the show going forward and talk about what the show has been up until this point on that one. So that'll be a fun one, too. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. But from here, you know, if you want to go back and listen to all of our stuff, we've got, what, this is uh, episode 39. So if you want to go listen to the previous 38 episodes, 38 plus, if you count the mini the mini episodes, uh, go to themummersfarce.libsen.com. All of our podcasts are on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. And you can always follow the our podcast account on Twitter at mummersfarcepod. Also, you can send us emails. Podcast at gmail.com is the email address. And now would be actually a good time to send us any comments you have. It'd be great to, if you've been listening this whole time, to hear from you, to maybe there's something we could read, what your listener experience has been this whole time when we get, when we get to the final episode. So you've got a, a couple weeks to write that. Um, or Well, no, you've got about a week, a week to write that. <laughs> get maybe, on it. Maybe less. So if you got an email, send it to us. Yeah. Now, get to your computer. Let us know what you think of, of the podcast. Or if anything hits you between now and the premiere of the eighth season, Mm-hmm. Let us know, and maybe we'll do sort of a collection of things that we are looking forward to with the final season coming mm-hmm. up. Yep. So we'll talk about all those details when we get there, but uh, we'll come back next week with um, some fun mini episodes recapping, coming up with some of maybe our favorite moments and other uh, fun categories for the last three seasons that we had here that we talked about. Yeah. Four, five, and six. So look forward to that. And so, yeah, that'll bring us to a close for this episode. Thanks so much, Kate. All right. Thanks, Dan. And uh, we'll see everybody next week. Bye. Bye.